Alright, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you're coming from. This will probably be the shortest country take uh, recorded to date, because it's really only going over several um, key events slash things happening in the NBA world. Um, this is being taped on a Sunday afternoon, shortly after Game 6 of the Los Angeles Clippers versus the Denver Nuggets. Um, so a lot has transpired over this past week. I made a podcast earlier last week about um, it was the first NBA podcast in a while that I addressed some of the social issues. But it seems like in the past two weeks, the NBA world has kind of come back down to earth in terms of basketball and in terms of just it being a raw sport. There was a lot of noise earlier last month. Not that that's a bad thing. But now that we are entering the deeper stages of the playoffs I feel like there's a lot more now to speculate about uh, several events that have taken place so you know today started off ubiquitous as normal Sundays and and Thursdays are the days I normally get off working at my usual workplace so you know get up on Sunday go do my thing come back put the game on and it was the game's uh, the game between the Clippers and the the Nuggets takes place at twelve or one o'clock, as opposed to early or later in the afternoon. And that's because football is finally back in the American in the American public viewing circle. If I said that right, it's amazing to me how pivotal this game is to people, despite a whole lot of people not really knowing names and figures within that sport it just seems like america is so infatuated with football that a lot of them a lot of these people won't even watch football they just football is kind of that family time where people come together and either on a sunday morning or uh late thursday afternoon depending on the team depending on where you where you're watching from and yeah, it's weird. I've only been in this country for seven years, you know, studying and working. And you know, I'm a church guy. I go to church. And the amount of football references that I've heard at church, thankfully, have, been, have declined over the years. But, I mean, there were several churches that I went to that just every single Sunday you'd hear over and over and over again football references. Um... <laughs> So yeah, the NFL's back. This was a point of contention when the NBA was planning their bubble and how long they would prolong the uh, quarantine of players. Uh, this was before the bubble began. So, you know, NBA bubble was being conceptualized and a whole slew of, of uh, sports and media outlets were talking about how uh, they, how the NBA was planning to combat viewership battles between the NFL and the NBA playoffs, because theoretically the NBA playoffs would start right before or right during the start of the NFL season, right? So there's really only one hurdle to have there. And at this point in the season, I feel like they've successfully, they successfully kind of maneuvered around the NFL season. Because now you just need to avoid having games on Sunday and for the most part Thursday, you know? Yes, it's going to suck a little bit. You know, Sundays are prime viewing time for any sport. 
And but that being said, I feel like they've they came in at just the right time. Whereas now we're we're getting into the conference finals of each conference. Um, so I feel like with less games to televise, the NBA can now kind of relax a little bit. This was a little this week and the week before was were a lot. Of, there were a lot of determining factors which teams were going to go into Game Seven, uh, which teams were going to be you know in in the playoffs and out. Until now, you know, with the NFL starting up, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, the NBA has, uh, they've, they've done their job in terms of viewership and yeah, people in this country, man, they, there's a playoff game between a playoff game and a regular season football game. The regular season football game trumps all of that, which is wild, which is crazy to imagine, um, which I personally don't really get. Uh, I feel like America's best sport, objectively, is basketball. Now, okay, technically, you you can come at me and say, well, James, technically the game was invented in Canada and yada, yada, yada. Okay. America owns basketball. Yes, they own American football, but, you know, key word there, American. It isn't played anywhere else. Basketball is played the world over. It's not as popular as soccer or football as the world knows it. But basketball... And jazz, you'll go hand in hand. Don't read too much into into the cultural aspects there. Just, just I'm just pointing it out that I think uh, I think basketball is America's best sport. It really is. They're, culturally, it's just like they own it like no other sport that is wildly popular across the world. Okay, and so now we get to meat and bones of what's going on. So. Los Angeles Clippers versus the Denver Nuggets. Yeah, so I was saying I, I went to church, played my drums, came back, made some food, put the game on, and things were going as planned at first. You know, the Los Angeles Clippers, they were doing their thing. The Denver Nuggets, they looked like a younger team. They were aggressive. Earlier on, they were super aggressive. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like it's worth mentioning. The addition of Gary Harris has really helped the Denver Nuggets like kind of find that full team dynamic value. Because for a lot of the bubble games, by bubble games, I mean regular season games outside of the playoffs and preseason games and a good extent of that Utah series. They didn't have him around. I think he had some kind of injury that sidelined him since March. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember what the injury was, but the fact of the matter is you have a pivotal uh, part or if you're starting five out in Gary Harris. And so now that you have him in the lineup, that's yet another guard, another really talented slash defensively abled guard that can handle the ball, that can put the ball in the hole, get you some points. He's not really a 20 point scorer yet. I'll say that it remains to be seen, although we have seen him do it. We have seen him explode. He's a very explosive guard. He has a super athletic. And yeah, overall, he complements the Denver game very well. He gives someone like Jamal Murray rest. He's a playmaker. You know, when Jamal, Mur- bah, when Jamal Murray goes to the bench, you have a guy like Gary Harris that can kind of playmake in place of him, make plays with Jokic. Okay. 
So I feel like with Denver, it's not exactly fair to say Denver in this series and Denver versus the Jazz is the same. Because towards the end, they added Gary Harris. Uh, Will Barton, I haven't really seen. Um, thing remains to be seen there. But yeah, just just wanted to point out, I feel like, I feel like a lot of media outlets aren't talking about the significance of Gary Harris and what he brings to the table for the Denver Nuggets. Now, going forward, they look very interesting. It's because now, the, well, interesting in respects because Michael Porter Jr. has had very, still very little playing time by NBA standards, you know? But somehow, in the playoffs and in the bubble games, they've been able to incorporate him into their offense and defense. Most of the time, he's coming off the bench. Sometimes he's starting. Malone, I think, still has to work with uh, the challenges of trying to bring this young, talented guy on. And to me, in my opinion, I think it's all a matter of reps and getting experience in, getting his hours in, getting minutes in. Whether those minutes are on the court or in practice or off the bench, in the starting lineup, this guy just has to rack up minutes in order to kind of find his identity as a player. Now, do I believe he's a starter? Yes. Do I believe he'll be in the starting lineup come next season? At the start of next season? Yes. I think you'd be a fool not to say. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. gives the Denver Nuggets a very interesting dynamic in that he gives them an inside presence outside of Jokic. Um, It's actually pretty athletic. Jokic has been on record saying that he does all this. He has to be this crafty, this good with his footwork and the ball just because he's quote-unquote not athletic. Well, now you have someone named Michael Porter Jr. who can get rebounds for you, who can score points in the paint, who can get, you know, you know rebounds, offensive and defensive, can give you defense, a solid defense on the inside. The only thing that kind of seems to get... um on MPJ's nerves or it kind of derails him as a player at the moment is when he sees the ball go in. And this is, this is something that's um, true for a lot of younger players in the league. It's kind of, they're streaky. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Streaky, right? So in a game of basketball, when you're, you're on a hot streak, uh, when you see the ball go in, it does something for you mentally. Now it does something for the superstars as well, but this, but the difference between the superstars and maybe the up-and-coming talent and, say, a bench or non-superstar player is that when the superstars don't see the ball go in, they keep shooting. It's because they know, they believe in their abilities, and if their shots aren't going in, they're, they're going to try to find other ways to contribute to the game, but not, not taking away from their offensive abilities. Well, what am I trying to say there? When you're a streaky player and when you're a streaky shooter, Often what people mean is that uh, after a certain point, you know, you get hot in a game, you're scoring, you're making shot after shot, consecutive shot after shot, right? And that's when usually when they're at their best. But that can also be bad because when they don't see the ball go in, sometimes they kind of get down on themselves. You can tell from their body language, they don't hustle back on defense as much. They're not hustling for the rebounds. They don't box out as much. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying we've seen too much of that from Michael Porter Jr. It's because he's only a rookie. You know, he's only played, he's played under 50 games or so, right? Um, so yeah, all things on the upswing for him. He's just, it's, it, again, it all comes back down to him getting minutes. 
and getting reps in today's NBA game, just for him to adjust to the pacing. Um, another point about him, too, I feel like him, players like him and Zion Williamson, you know, okay, I'm comparing two very different players, you know, two very different players in terms of size and in terms of um, what they bring to each team, because I think Zion means a lot more to the Pelicans than uh, Porter Jr. means to the Denver Nuggets. But I feel like these players can kind of cata- can be a catal- catalyst for good post play again. It's because. OK, hold on. <laughs> this is a tangent. I'm going off of it, but but bear with me. I, I feel like this whole NBA that we're seeing right now. <clears throat> <clears throat> is super well what do you call it warriors um warriors mimicky ever since the warriors established their version of play you see every single other team trying to mimic them whether they have the personnel to do it or not subconsciously and unconsciously too i feel like the warriors impact on the game is so great that you have teams neglecting to shoot easy layups and easy, not easy, but more makeable slash more logical mid-range to deeper post-paint points in favor of the long-range jump shot. Um, and I feel, like many others, that it takes maybe one or two players to shake that up and say, no, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to allow for this to happen anymore you may want to do that uh but when i come down i'm gonna give you the works inside and players like michael porter jr and zion williamson i think are capable of bringing that back into the equation lamarcus aldridge to a certain extent was um he's he's kind of random you know he's not in the playoffs right now but the reason i bring him up is because he mostly gets his points done from the mid-range and he's a seven footer fringe seven footer you know so i feel like i want to start seeing basketball played in its fullest extent again not this sort of anarchy (laughs) uh analytic anarchy era that we're in right now where we only prioritize and we only give weight and credence to and at least on the offensive end to the long range jump shot that's like that's like the most stigmatized yet at the same time most sought after weapon in today's NBA. And I, I'm just not, in my opinion, that that just that, that takes away from so many more beautiful aspects of the game. Um, yeah, so back <laughs> going going back and you know, pedaling back to Michael Porter Jr., I feel like he's yet another tool in that Denver Nuggets toolbox that they have now to to add to this really interesting team, which, by the way, I think this series has given rise to the notion that Denver has now kind of gone up in that rating of, you know, they've only been in the playoffs for, you know, two, three years, right? About, it was, there, was, there was this year, there was this one year that... Two, three years ago, they weren't making it. They were right there. They were in the ninth and eighth seed. They were fighting it, and they just couldn't get in. And now that they're in, right? And so they were a playoff team. And now this year with this series, I think they've kind of catapulted themselves into that upper echelon of actually belonging 
in the playoffs and actually pretty much borderline contending for a championship. If this series is anything to go by, Denver might be the young team that everyone is thinking about. You know, we're going to talk about Miami and Boston in a little bit, but Denver, the Denver Nuggets are a team to be reckoned with at the moment, I must say. Jamal Murray, you know, he had a few years right out of his rookie year that, you know, people didn't, people didn't really give stock to him. Um, same as Jokic, you know, really good players in their own respects before coming to the NBA, but they didn't, it took them some time, you know, and credits to the Denver Nuggets. They didn't shy away from that, you know, and so now let's take a look at this game for a little bit. Yeah. So I, you know, did my thing, had my food, was watching the game. They were up by 19 or so going into this, or 16 going into halftime. And right around then, I'll be honest, I took a nap. <laughs> and, you know, sort of had the game audio on. I was, you know, on my couch, sleepy as usual on a Sunday afternoon. And at one point saw that the Clippers were up by 19. So I'm thinking, okay, okay, this is... um. This is exactly what happened last game, but guess what? These are the Los Angeles Clippers. These, this is the team that we've been parking on and the team that we've been ascribing all these different attributes to, regardless of the fact that they've never won a championship before. They've never been together before. They've never been this one unit before. But in my mind, I'm thinking they have all, like, like everyone else, they have all the elements to, of a championship team. They have the toughness, right? They have the coach. They have basketball perfection in Kawhi Leonard. You know, but I woke up around, <laughs> I woke up from my nap around four o'clock. I look at my, you know, instant messages. And one of my friends is a super Clippers fan. And he's been on this irate tear of Doc Rivers lately. And I gotta say, after this game, when I saw the result, the criticism was somewhat warranted. They were up 16 going into halftime. Up 19 at some point in the third quarter. I took a nap and by the time I woke up, the final score is 111 to 898. Nuggets win forcing a game 7 to be headlined on Tuesday. What happened? Well, without even looking at the highlights, without even looking at the highlights, let's take a look at Denver's numbers statistically. Okay, I, I hate to be that guy where you only look at the stats, but when something like that occurs, and it occurred in the last game too, I feel like the numbers can actually tell you a few things. So right here, we're looking at Jokic, Harris, Murray, Jr., Michael Porter Jr., Monte Morris. One, two, three, four, five. Five players with 10 or more points. Right? With the team high being... Uh, with the team high being Jokic. Okay? Everyone else had a pretty subpar game. Uh, Jamal Murray, he had 21 points. Five assists. Those are good point guard numbers. But Jamal Murray, as we've been accustomed to seeing him, he's, you know, we're used to seeing him score much more. That means 
But just looking at this alone, and looking at the matchup numbers, the Denver Nuggets had 41 rebounds versus Clippers 37. So they out-rebounded them. They had more defensive rebounds. They had more assists. They... What this tells me, without even looking at the highlights, now, you know, say, say what you will, but without even looking at the game footage, what this tells me is that in the time between them being up 19 to the end of the game, what likely happened was that the Clippers had to have taken their foot off the gas pedal somehow. Because simply put, if the Clippers wanted to, if the Clippers wanted to, they had every tool and power at their disposal to completely dismantle this game into nothing. You know, it was a fairly evenly matched game. And I say that evenly matched with quotation marks because, you know, the score was what it was going into halftime. Um... But the Nuggets simply outmaneuvered and out-executed the Clippers. And slowly and slowly and slowly it ate into their lead. I'm looking at the match-by-matchup and play-by-play right now. In the third quarter right here, yeah, they executed more. They clearly executed more. Wasn't like they were playing at a high, much higher level than the Clippers. But you know, in, in basketball, we, we talk about this thing called execution. What it means to complete a play, not commit turnovers. Now, not like the turnover numbers with anybody, because overall, um, Denver committed more turnovers. But this this tells me that the Nuggets were actually way more aggressive in getting the ball to the hole and getting the ball to several other players, thereby having more than six players in double digits, versus the Clippers, who had four players in double digits. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, main two guys. Your other three starters, Patrick Beverly, Ivan Zubac, Ivika Zubac, Morris, combined for 11 points. Okay. Jermichael Green, had I thought, had a pretty good game. He had his moments. Lou Williams had his game. Montrez Harrell had a pretty bad game by, by all standards for being the sixth man of the year. And yeah, just looking at the matchup alone, in the third quarter, the Denver Nuggets outscored the Clippers 30-16. to 16. And in the fourth quarter, 34-19. to 19. That right there is what caused them to lose. Obviously, right? They mean they scored more points. What this tells me is that, coaching-wise, Mike Malone adjusted yet again two games in a row to Doc Rivers' uh, rotations. Now, what does this mean for the Clippers? Uh, Me personally, I think that the Clippers are still not... um, They haven't detracted from the champion... They haven't detracted from the championship image of them that I had at the beginning of the season that I've had of them through, throughout the season. 
But what this does mean and what this does imply is that the Clippers seem to be, and I know I'm going in circles here, but hear me out. It feels like the Clippers feel, they themselves feel like they can turn it off switch, right? They have an on and off switch. Now, an analyst by the name of Colin Cowherd says that we as humans and individuals flip switches all the time. You know, if we're going to work, if we're, do, if we're doing different things. And, you know, the Clippers right now, it seems like they think they can just flip this thing on and off, on and off at whenever they want. Doesn't matter if we lose a game or not. No, while that's well within their prerogative to do so, I again, it's it's that it's for me, it's that level of skepticism versus the skepticism in the sense that okay, this is them right now. This doesn't really, this isn't the Clippers team that is going to beat the Lakers, who are now waiting for them. But at the same time, the skepticism for me is also that. Given the personnel and their track record for the whole year, I don't think there's any doubt that they're going to win this game seven. But I think that this series has given rise to the fact of their weaknesses. The fact that relentless execution from an opposing team can actually derail them. Because the mark of a great team is that you can withstand that onslaught, you can withstand the other team's A game. When the Warriors won their championship, they were in the crosshairs of, and I'm just talking about the regular season, hey? And for the majority of that playoffs, right? 2015 to 2016. Yes, the year that they dropped the 3-1 lead, okay? Barring the fact that they lost, they were the team in the crosshairs of every, indiv- every team and every individual in the NBA outside of the Golden State Warriors. They played with a chip on their shoulder, and what resulted was Stephen Curry being nominated into his double, into a second MVP unanimously, and them having a 73-9 and record. Them changing the face of the NBA, winning that game six against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Klay Thompson having that game that he did. All, all to say is they reached the finals that year, and they were able to, they, they were one game away from being the greatest team objectively in NBA history. What does this have to do with the Clippers? Well, the Clippers last year did something like this, did something very similar to the Golden State Warriors. They took the battle to the Warriors, and it actually took the Warriors six games to beat the Clippers, who had no superstar. Their superstar was Lou Williams. Their superstars were Doc Rivers, Lou Williams, and Montrezl Harrell. Oh, yeah, and maybe Patrick Beverly just to bug the Warriors for good measure, right? And so the whole optics of this season, the whole, all the questions kind of surrounded themselves with, can the Clippers uh, go from being a team that was underrated, that was in the underdog spot, to now being the team in the crosshair by every NBA team? Sorry about that. Um, and so far, the answer has been Yes. They've been able to withstand it. They've been able to quell the naysayers. Well, this is the real first test for the Clippers. The regular season was never really in doubt and it was never really a question for the Clippers because you had players like Kawhi Leonard um, that were going to load manage. 
it was never a question. And so now, this Game 7 here is the first real test to whether or not they can, they are the team that we thought they were. And to me, I think this is wonderful for the NBA. I think this is wonderful in many respects. Maybe not for Clippers fans, obviously. But the fact that we now have a series, we now have a Game 7 involving a championship, a true championship contender versus an up-and-coming team. This says so many different things for the NBA going forward. The fact that you have Kawhi Leonard in a Game 7 before the NBA Finals, coming off of the year that he just won an NBA championship. So many different things on the line. As a fan, there's a lot to respect. This Game 7, how I predicted going, I feel unlike this game, unlike the prediction I had for this game where I thought the Clippers were going to completely blow the ever-living crap out of the Denver Nuggets, I think it's going to be a highly contested game closely. Contested game. I believe Doc Rivers will adjust his lineups to reflect that which is coming to him from the other side. There's questions to be had about when he subs in Montrez, when he subs in Zubac. And this right here is a test for them. It's a really good test for them. And it's one I think they will pass. Because coming right after them, coming right after these Denver Nuggets, is LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Now, they've had battles of their own. But the Lakers, uh, are, they're looking exactly like we thought they were post or pre-COVID. Right? That's a point I made last week. What I mean by that is they're playing like a team that has Anthony Davis and LeBron James on it. Oh, and by the way, their team is gelling really well. They're shooting well. They're executing well. They're defending well. And in the Houston series, they proved, they proved that they could defend the perimeter. Yes, they lost one game in pretty decisive fashion, but you have a LeBron James that is hungry for a title in Los Angeles in the year 2020. I hate to say Kobe Bryant's passing kind of puts a lot of pressure on LA in particular to bring home the championship, right? Now take that out. Take that out of the way because what this means for the Clippers is that what they do in Game 7 against the Denver Nuggets with a young core will determine, should they succeed, will determine how they approach playing against a veteran team. A veteran team that's much like theirs where this is really the only year for the first year that they've been together. And... Yeah, it, it boses this this next this next game, this game seven, lots of questions. Lots of challenges that need to be met by the Clippers in order to give them confidence again to then take on the Lakers. Now, me personally, I, I don't think it just comes down to these intangibles. I don't think it's just the optics of the game. I think it's also the fact that the that the Denver Nuggets match up incredibly well with the Los Angeles Clippers. You know, defensively, they're, they're a mismatch at several levels. They're overall taller at several levels. You know, you got Zubats. No, you got Jokic. You got MPJ. Um, you got Millsap. These players, 
Okay, not 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 MPJ. Okay, just just taking the uh, Denver's core. These players can play. And the thing is, they're not afraid of the Clippers. Just like the Clippers weren't afraid of the Warriors last year. And it's what's caused such upheaval. And it's what caused Kevin Durant to say, you know who I am. I'm Kevin Durant. This next game, Kawhi Leonard needs to do exactly that. You know who I am. What a do, baby. I am Kawhi Leonard. I am basketball perfection. I have the finals MVP on two teams. I am Kawhi Leonard. I can potentially have finals MVP on three teams. I will be the only player to do so. If I beat LeBron James, I'll be the only player to do so. Now, Kawhi Leonard is far from the player that will say that mentally. That, that, no, is far from the player that will say that out loud. But that's the kind of gusto and energy that he has to bring to this next Game 7 going into the Lakers series if they want to win a championship. All right. All right. So, yeah, my prediction is the Clippers will win. We will get the series that we've been talking about and screaming about. And then the NBA and media, sports media circles have been creaming about. Sorry to use that language, but they really have every single week. It's been Lakers, Clippers, Lakers, Clippers, Lakers, Clippers, Kawhi LeBron, Kawhi LeBron, Kawhi LeBron, Paul George, Anthony Davis. Every week it's been that. And this next game, <laughs> not to put too much stock on it, but it's really the first test that the Clippers have ever had all season long. Can they get over themselves? Because if they get over themselves and they play like they want blood, Denver stands no chance. I'm sorry. As good as Denver has been and as good as they're going to be going forward, Clippers are simply the better team if they're not in their own way. Okay, so now going to... Now going to the, my second kind of mini topic. You saw that Mike D'Antoni vouched out um, and expressed to the Houston Rockets that he would be a free agent going into the 2019 and no, the 2020-21 season. Let me take water. Okay. Several questions here. What does this mean for James Harden? What does this mean for Russell Westbrook? What does this mean for Fertitta in the front office? You know, Houston has been this experiment where this year, where in this year they traded. Okay, when I say this year, roughly, right? 2019, 2020. They traded away CP3, Chris Paul, one of the greatest point guards of our generation and to ever play barring the fact that he hasn't won a championship barring the fact that he's only been to the conference finals once that still doesn't take away from the fact that he's a easy vote in hall of famer one of the greatest playmakers to ever play the great one of the best defenders at that position that we've seen a relentless competitor aging yes bad contract arguable they traded him away they got Russell Westbrook at the beginning of the season. They also went all in on their small ball ideology, let's say. Okay. There's been many names for what they've what they've been doing. I'm just gonna call it the Dantoni 
small ball ideology. Or at least the Daryl Morey ideology. Going small. Trading away Clint Capella, getting Robert Covington. And it was all in. And at the time, media outlets loved it. But I guarantee you, if you look at media outlets and their takes this week, it's pretty much going to be all negative. Houston, we have a major problem. Uh, This experiment isn't working. And that was my prediction when that happened, when they traded away Clint Capella. Now, am I saying Clint Capella was a superstar? No. Was, am I saying that if they had him, they'd be a full-on championship co- contender team going up against the likes of the Clippers and the Lakers and the Nuggets <laughs> with the Heat? Not necessarily. But what I think they did by trading away Capella was they shot themselves in the foot in that they're now forcing themselves to play exclusively one way. And that one way nearly cost them the series against the team that they traded Chris Paul to. A team that, for all intents and purposes, wasn't even supposed to be in the playoffs. One supposed to be in the seventh spot, let alone eighth. Seventh. And the Rockets nearly lost to them. Going small forces someone like P.J. Tucker to guard every single big man over six foot seven, outside of you know him and Robert Covington. Having to guard tall players. Tyson Chandler was on the team, but he's old. He hasn't really seen minutes like he used to. So defensively, they had no identity. None. They made defensive plays, and it was a defensive play by James Harden that led the Rockets into the second, into the second round. Which, by the way, is Russell Westbrook's first second round berth since Kevin Durant left. With D'Antoni opting out, this poses some serious questions for what Houston wants to achieve going forward. And I don't think that plan involves the combination of either Russ and Harden. I think you're going to have to make do with one of them going away and getting more pieces to build around the other. I'm like everybody else, sadly. I don't think Russell Westbrook. Do I think he's capable of winning a championship on a championship-winning team? Yes. The key word there is championship-winning team, and the the team has to be capable of of it first. And right now, Houston just doesn't have the components for it. They did two years ago against the Warriors. If you guys remember, it was that 2018 series. They were up in that series. They were executing very well. Why? It's because they had a player by the name of Chris Paul. A dog. Who, by the way, executes and doesn't shy away and doesn't... Not shy away, because it's not like Russell shies away or anything, but can execute down the stretch. This Houston team, now without D'Antoni, has a big gray area down the middle. Of what they want to achieve going forward. Can, and the main question is, can Harden be complimented in order to win a championship? Now, what do I mean by that? You know, that may not be the grammatically correct term. But can Harden get 
a championship. No. Can Harden be complemented by another piece wherein that combination can win a championship? That's the main question on the line right now. Because he, you know, he's already won an MVP. We know he can score. We know what he's capable of. At this point in the game, we're wondering if, he's, if it's even possible for him to win a championship with another player. Period. I think a lot has to be said about his leadership skills or lack thereof. The fact that year after year after year, we see him doing amazing things on the offensive end. Lackluster things on the defensive end. The combination of which makes for a pretty lousy showing as a leader. And I'm not saying he's a bad leader because, again, then again, I haven't, none of us have played with him. But everything from body language to the way he hustles, to the way he demands the ball, there's a lot in question right now. And even more questions as D'Antoni opts out. Now, for D'Antoni himself, there's a lot of blame that should be casted his way as well, obviously, for how Houston turned out, right? Has it been a success by normal NBA standards? Sure. They've been deep in the playoffs. They've been in the playoffs every year that he's coached there. They've had a pretty successful run with him. It's just when championships come to mind, D'Antoni... One, you had the Warriors getting in your way, but two, it, it, always, seemed like the war, it always seemed like the Rockets got in their own way, much like the Clippers are getting in their own way right now. Because you have coaches or you have personnel on the team that just won't relent and that just won't execute in multiple different ways. I keep bringing up the Warriors, but let's bring up a team like the Spurs, for example, which I feel are the, the, were the precursors to the Warriors. The Spurs executed on every single facet of the court and level. On every level and in every conceivable way that they could execute, they did. And that's why they won the championships they did. Championship teams win because they execute on every level. They out-execute the other team. Not only do they bring the fight, but they have the will to check off every single thing that needs to get done. It's the small things and the intangibles. And under D'Antoni, the Rockets had a lot of big intangibles that they didn't feel. Rebounds. Inside points. Um, Defensive identity. And so for D'Antoni right now, I think the, the noise has been for him that he's going to go to the Indiana Pacers. Um, I don't think that'd be a necessarily bad idea. But my hope is that if D'Antoni goes, the Pacers will retain some of their defensive identity and not sacrifice themselves on the offensive end too much, you know, because under D'Antoni, you you have a very high-powered offense. You have a very fast and kind of fireworks display offense, you know, run and gun. Yeah. It was a surprise to me. You know, I woke up and saw the news this morning, D'Antoni being out. And yeah, in, in conclusion, this could be chaos for Houston going into the future. A, a lot falls on them right now to remedy what the losses um, I don't think anybody expected them to beat the Lakers. Uh, no, I, I definitely didn't. So it's not a surprise 
But there were whispers of D'Antoni leaving, and now that he has gone, things are about to get dicey in, in Houston. All right. So last point and last event that we're going to cover on, and I'll keep this short since we're going. wanted to keep this short. We got Miami versus Boston. Um, Boston with a terrific kind of series against the Raptors. And Miami with a complete dominant, dominant showing against the Miami, the, the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, this series is all about the optics going in to this series is all about toughness versus talent. It's undeniable that Boston is more talented than Miami, but Miami is at heart tougher and more gritty-minded than the Miami Heat, than the Boston Celtics. So the question right now, we're, we're going to look at the matchups here. We got Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker, Goran Dragic, Bam Abadabayo, Tice, whoever, whoever's at the five, uh, Jalen Brown, Tyler Hero, not that these are direct matchups, not that these are direct starting fives, but I'm just naming out names here. We're talking about stylistic and tonally different teams, coached by two very interesting and well-rounded coaches, Eric Spolstra and uh, Brad Stevens. Might I say, yeah, this, this Miami team is... I never, I never want to say that they're one away from a championship, but they really are in this case. Like they, they have the toughness, and borderline, they have most of the talent that they need to get to be considered like a far and away championship team, right? And they're about a, they're a series away from the finals right now, so you have to actually put them there at this point. With with Boston, it's similar in that they're one tough guy away from the finals. Now, with the demise and fall and absence of Gordon Hayward, Gordon Hayward was never tough, but he gave them all he gave them a whole another dynamic as well. And so not having him there kind of sucks for them as well. But they've managed and they've been able to tough it out. And so yeah, there's there's not I I don't really have much for that series. I never really predicted Miami to get this far, but I'm glad that they have gotten this far just because Miami has been they've been incredible to watch. I feel like my a team a team like Miami right now is really good for the NBA. It's really good for the identity of the NBA and basketball just because of the stuff that they bring. They are a tough team. I've said that over and over and over and over and over again. They are tough. And I love the fact that a blue collar tough kind of together team in the NBA bubble is now going to be in the conference finals against a kind of Hollywood, no pun intended, you know, with Boston and L.A., but a more traditional, you got three players that can score 20 at any, any given time, Kemba Walker, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown team. A talented team. Marcus Smart. There, there you go. There's, they're a tough guy. They need one more. Much like the Miami Heat, they need one more to be catapulted into the level that we considered the Lakers, the Clippers, 
and the Bucks before before all this, you know. So the question is, will Miami out-execute Boston, or will Boston be too much on the offensive end for Miami to handle? Because unlike the Milwaukee Bucks, Boston has weapons. Boston can spread the floor. Boston can run the floor extremely well. Their floor economics and pacing are superior, I think, at this point to Milwaukee. And on the Boston end of things, will Jason Tatum take that next level step and say, no, I am actually the best player in the East. Not, not this guy, Giannis. Not this guy, Pascal Siakam, who we can't even consider anymore after this past series. Just because we've seen Jay, Jason Tatum be very inconsistent. Uh, in the cl- especially in the closing minutes of these games. When he's dominant, he's dominant. His footwork is second to none. He's one of the best in the NBA. He's one of the best amongst the young players. But Jason Tatum, I think, has a chance right now to prove himself in this Miami series if he gets him to the finals. You know, if, if Jason Tatum comes out ball, guns blazing, even if they lose guns blazing, Jason Tatum being guns blazing says a lot for where the Boston Celtics are going from this point forward. All right. And so, part of what I've seen with uh, Miami, too, is they have trouble against speed. Um, and that's going to be a problem with the likes of Kemba Walker, who's a lightning-fast guard, small, very nimble, able, a floor general, of a, a veteran floor general. They're going to have some trouble guarding him. And... They're also going to have trouble with the likes of uh, Marcus Smart, who's going to rough up someone like Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, Kendrick Nunn. These players that aren't used to these, to players that have seen playoff action for more than a, a season. We forget that, huh? Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, Kendrick Nunn. They're all rookies. And we have yet to see any veteran team expose them. Now, credits to them, they, they've come in tough. They've played and practiced under Jimmy Butler, Eric Spolster, <laughs> owned by a team that's owned under Pat Riley. There's control at every single level in the Miami organization, and it proves itself right here. Ever since, in, in the absence of James, LeBron James, they've rebuilt themselves up to this point. There were a lot of questions. I wasn't with the fact that Jimmy Butler went over to Miami. I thought if he had stayed in Philadelphia, things might have gone to a different level there, but it's obvious now that this was the right choice. Jimmy Butler is exactly where he needs to be, and he looks happy for the first time since early Chicago days with Derrick Rose when they were competing themselves. He looks happy. He looks happy. He looks like he's found his identity as a star on a team, and it doesn't look like he's that egotistical. What do I mean by that? Yes, he has an ego. Yes, he has a rather big kind of persona. But say if the Miami Heat were to get another superstar. As long as that guy has some dog in him, has dog in him, I don't see it being a problem. Jimmy Butler had problems on teams where players just weren't dogs. He had a problem on the Minnesota Timberwolves, as he should have. Then he had a problem in, Minas- in, in Philadelphia, not, not as public as the one in, Phil- in Minnesota, just because, to quote him, to paraphrase him, He didn't know what was going on in that organization. He didn't know what direction they were going. And it's very obvious. 
um, what has transpired with them. So yeah, optics going into this series, <laughs> kind of long-winded way of saying I'm I'm really happy for Miami. I'm really happy for Butler that you know this this is the team that he's kind of heralded himself under. There were a lot of naysayers going into this series, no, in, going into this season of whether or not he'd be able to catapult them. Uh, above what we'd uh, we'd previously perceived of them before, we couldn't have predicted that Nunn, Tyler Hero, uh, Kendrick Nunn, Tyler Hero, and Duncan Robinson would be this good. They're a tough team, as they're a tough team, man. Tough, 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 tough. You got Kelly Olynyk, who's one of the nastiest, kind of dirtiest, sneaky players ever. At least in this current NBA right now, he's 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 a glue guy. He's a rough dude to tackle on the offensive end if he's guarding you you're in for a rough night then you got bam out of bio which i still think he's on a hot streak right now that remains to be seen so it's not like miami doesn't have the talent but it's like they're them and boston both to kind of cap my point off they're one one superstar away from being that lakers category all right or lakers clippers warriors category all right uh so predictions for it I quite honestly have Miami winning it's because I believe in the playoffs, the game slows down and talented teams have a harder time defending against tougher minded teams. And I feel like Miami is the tougher team, not lacking too much talent. It's going to be a long series. I give Miami in six is my bold prediction going in. Um, but I'm not holding anything to the fire. I, I, I'm hoping for a great series if it goes seven, even better. But Miami in six. Uh, and Miami heats the finals for the first time since LeBron James left. Yeah, that's my prediction for them. All right, so this has been the NBA segment for this week. And depending on what time you listen to this throughout the week, facts may have changed. Other reports may have come out. You know, we had a report of Giannis reportedly unfollowing a lot of his uh, Milwaukee Bucks teammates and the team on instagram i don't want to read it too much into that we'll see what the (laughs) that's probably one of the things the media will address this week no doubt you will probably hear that but if you've been listening up to up to this point thank you this was an impromptu kind of random at the last minute nba segment i felt like doing it since we are just at that point now where things are about to get really fast the days are about to go by real quick as the finals start at the end of the month, I think. So, yeah, thanks for watching. Uh, hopefully another podcast this week. Probably not about the NBA. There'll be a fight. Yeah, there is a fight next week. There'll be two consecutive UFC pay-per-views in the next two weeks. This coming week is going to be Robert Covington and... um, Yeah, Ro- no, Robert Covington. Colby Covington and Tyron Woodley this weekend. And the next weekend is going to be the main thing. Uh, middleweight title with... Paulo Costa 